0: we are seeing the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place as you all know uh, during the session if you have any questions you can always use the chat box and even to answer the questions you can use the chat box or you can unmute yourself and answer the question uh, we will try to have a Q&A session at the end of this meeting we are looking at the opening the seven seals of God's scroll. God was holding the scroll in his right hand and we saw that was John was literally weeping. Is there no one to go and open that scroll? And one of the elders will say that the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Jesus is opening one seal after the another seal And we saw that when the first four seals were opened, we saw a white horse, a warrior sitting on the white horse, and then we saw the fiery red horse with a sword. In other words, he is out to wage a war. Then we saw the third seal with a man holding a black horse with a weighing scale, and uh, we can always remember this because of black marketing, there's going to be economic crisis. Uh, that's the third seal. And the fourth seal is, it was a pale horse and the and the heads was following it. In other words, it's showing uh, death. Then when, we, when the fifth seal was opened, we saw the martyrs under the altar crying out, how long, Lord, how long, Lord? When are you going to vindicate us? That's what we saw in the fifth seal. And the sixth seal was terrible. When the sixth seal was open, we saw sun turning black, moon turning blood red, and stars falling from the sky, like figs dropping from a fig tree. Uh, some mountains and islands being removed from its place. I don't know to what extent we can imagine the scene. In other words, it's all, it is the end of the earth. And we saw the kings and generals, people in authority, people from all walks of life, running to the mountains. They are running to caves to hide themselves. They are crying to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and cover us, fall on us and cover us. Then we were waiting for the seventh seal to be opened. But instead of the seventh seal, we saw there are two visions. It's like an intermission, or it's like an interval. We, while we are waiting for the seventh seal, we are not seeing the seventh seal being opened. Rather, we are seeing there are two visions, but these two visions are comforting. Comforting in the sense that it gives courage. It gives encouragement, it gives hope to the believers. These visions, they give the assurance that God's people are secure. They are secure from the plagues and judgments. We saw the first vision last uh, Wednesday, chapter seven, from verses one to eight, we saw a multitude of 144,000 We saw 12,000 from each tribe, 12 tribes, 144,000. Today, we are going to look at the second vision. What we will do is we will read this vision so that we will be able to understand it more clearly. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, 9 to 17 gives us the second vision. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the lamb all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped god saying amen praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our god forever and ever amen Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor in his scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." Now, we have seen in the beginning itself, John was well-versed with the Old Testament. In fact, he's quoting uh, Old Testament in most of the places. So we'll always go back to the Old Testament to understand how to interpret this. Because in the, first, the earlier vision we saw, we saw 144,000 people and it was almost it was happening on the earth and now this vision is happening in heaven now we have cases or we have instances in the old testament where uh, double versions of the same vision has been recorded uh, listen to me carefully double versions of the same vision has been recorded in the Old Testament. Do you remember any such vision in the Old Testament? Because we are trying to figure out whether Revelation 7, 1 to 8, and 9 to 17, whether they are two versions of the same vision or they're altogether two different visions. So, in order to understand that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And uh, that's where we are trying to find out, do you remember any such vision in the Old Testament, where two versions of the same vision has been recorded? versions of the same vision Joseph's dream? Uh, I didn't hear that. Joseph's dream. Yes, you're right. You're right, Joseph's dream. Because uh, in Genesis 41, 25 to 27, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grains caused by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. So it is the same dream. So we are trying to uh, keep this in our background so that we can understand. Otherwise, we will try to give a meaning of our own. Now, having this in the background, is there a difference between the two visions? Revelation 7, 1 to 7, uh, 1 to 8, and from 9 to 17. Is there a difference between the two visions? If you say yes, what are the differences? That's the reason why we read that passage, Revelation 7, 9 to 17, today we read, so that you will be able to find out is there any difference between the two visions is there a difference between the two visions if yes what are the differences uh, one is one is what's happening in the earth and the other one is what's happening in heaven yes pastor Somebody's saying that. What else? Anybody else wants to try? There are uh, many differences. If you see the first vision and the second vision, we can come, we can see, but uh, then we'll study that. You know, because just in Revelation 7-4, we heard that, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. In other words, in this vision, that first vision, that's there in Revelation chapter seven, one to eight, the multitude was numbered. I heard the number, I heard the number of those who were sealed. it is one 44,000. Uh, and if we see in Revelation, uh, seven, nine to 17, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. In the first vision, he heard the number. In the second vision, he saw. And that multitude, no one could count. And we saw in the, in the first vision, we have seen that it is basically from the 12 tribes, 12,000 into 12, 144,000. And basically, it's talking about a Jewish community, 12 tribes and 12000 144000 uh, but in this case from every nation tribe people and language every nation tribe people and language in the in the first one you know the angel orders the four angels you know to hold back the winds they wanted to destroy so the angel is telling them wait 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 till i put a seal on their forehead in other words it was a vision uh, talking about a danger a destruction that's about to come in this vision it's not a destruction it is all about people a victoria a group of victorious people praising god in this vision that's what we see in this vision In the earlier vision, uh, we saw that I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. We have seen last week if the wind and I, if the angels were to hold back the wind, what will happen to this world? Destruction will happen immediately. It is imminent. Uh, that's the kind of uh, introduction we had for the first vision. But in this case, it is, it is not about destruction. Here we find people from every nation, tribe, people, and language group standing before the throne, and they cried out in a loud voice. They're praising God, they're victorious, they they are so secure. Uh, That's the kind of picture that is there uh, in in this picture. Now, both the visions are correlative. They're mutually, they're related. That's the reason why I drew your attention to Genesis 41, 25 to 27, when Joseph is interpreting Pharaoh's dream and he says, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. In the same way, these two visions are also correlative. They are mutually interpreted, related, though the location may differ. They may even refer to the same group of people, though it is portrayed in the first group as exclusively a Jewish group because of 12 tribes. And in the second tribe, it's talking about uh, second vision, it's talking about every nation, tribe, people, and language. So uh, there is going to be opposition. It is not that God's people will be in you know, spared uh, opposition, but in the end, this is how the picture will be. There's, you know, God is talking about his end-time army. And basically through these visions, he wants to encourage his people. The first vision portrays symbolically, it is symbolically God's end time spiritual army. Symbolically it is end time spiritual army. The second vision, we can call it as a literal interpretation of the first, how Mm -hmm. it's going to end, how the first vision is going to end. Yes, God will have his army of people who will stand for the word of God and how it's going to end. In other words, all of us today, as you listen to this, all of us are his end-time army. Let's not come to this conclusion only Jewish people are part of the end-time army. No. Everyone who has accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior is a part of his end-time army and Note this carefully, we overcome our enemies not by killing them. We overcome our enemies not by killing them but by martyrdom at their hands. It is not by we killing them, it is rather they will kill us. That is the way we overcome our enemies. Anytime people talk about the kind of message, fire will come, God will do this, but God will kill. Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus is the one who represents our God, exactly. And God is not asking us that we bring punishment on our enemies. Rather, he says, you know, give your life so that God's kingdom can be established. Revelation has several references where God's people will be martyred if you are living under an illusion that you know, we will be, somehow we'll be protected, my life will be secure. In fact, God gave his life to save us and secure us. And we are just as followers. We just follow the life of our king. And Revelation itself gives us several examples to say that God's people will be martyred. Let me give you a few examples. Revelation eleven seven. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. It'll not spare them. It'll overpower and kill them. God's people will be killed. Revelation eleven seven, Revelation twelve eleven. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives as much as to shrink from death. When we don't shrink from death, the Word of God says, we have triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. Gospel demands our life. We have been saved by the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and gospel also demands from us our lives. Uh, Revelation 13, 7. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Uh, I hope it's all very clear how god is god has not hidden anything god has not given us false promises saying that you know there will be no persecution in fact the if you read the sermon on the mount it says blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of god and then you read matthew chapter 5 verse 11 uh, blessed are those When uh, blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. God is calling when people insult us, persecute us, and say all kinds of evil against us. God calls us as blessed people. It is there right in Matthew. We don't even have to come to Revelation. Revelation. So the Revelation is very clear, the book of Revelation. We have a struggle and uh, God's people will also lay down their lives. Revelation 21.7, that's how the world is going to end. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. God's people are not going to hide from persecution. God's people, you know, if we, ha- if we have to be like Jesus, Jesus went to the cross. He didn't hide himself. So that's the role his followers also will have. God has shown us the way. And the revelation makes it very clear. You know, we will also be like Jesus. In our end times, because in Revelation 5:5, we have already seen, then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So this is this is part of our mantle. You know, we saw this Sunday, we heard a missionary who came from. China was served in that place. Uh, we heard from him that how the Chinese Christians pray. They don't pray, you know, and they don't say, Lord, protect us from persecution, but rather they pray, Lord, give us grace to withstand persecution. Uh, we also heard that how easily they are put behind the bars. If they go, it is for six months and six years. Young people, but they're all they have not given up their faith. Imagine they just because of their faith they are put in prison and um, many a time they don't know when they'll come out also but their prayers are not that protect us from persecution. They don't pray like that. That's the reason the Chinese church is also growing in multitude because of the passion they have for Jesus Christ the love they have for this lamb, the lamb who has given his blood to save us. And that's what motivates them. That's what inspires them. We are ready to give our blood, but Lord, let your kingdom come. Let people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And that's what's going to happen all the more towards the end times. So with this, we will go back to verse one, Revelation chapter seven, uh, verse nine. This is the first verse of the second vision. After this, after this, I said, whenever we come across this phrase after this, that is pointing towards a new vision. So after Revelation seven, one to eight, we come across this phrase after this, that means whatever follows hereafter, it's a new vision. And I looked, I saw, and there before me was a great multitude. He saw, because 1,44,000, he heard the number, but here John is seeing a vision. There was a great multitude, no one could count. And it says that from every nation, tribe, people, and language every nation, tribe, people, and language. John must have been so delighted to see this vision. You know, John's time, we have seen the churches that are undergoing persecution, and they are all very small in size. And John is seeing a vision, and this is how it'll be from every nation, tribe, people, and language. You know, he's, he's having the, you know, he's thinking, you know, the hope of the gospel has touched all peoples. Uh, because here is a place uh, where no one could count. That's a great multitude. A great multitude has come to believe in our Lord Jesus. Now, sometimes we are very casual saying that you know the second coming of Jesus will not come till the gospel. Uh, is preached to every nation, tribe. So we say there are so many unreached people group, so Jesus Christ will not come. That's a very false way of uh, reading the Bible. Uh, the, The proper way of reading that is, whenever God feels that the gospel has sufficiently reached every nation and tribe, he will come. That's for God to decide. It's not for us to decide. It is not for us to sit with a pen of paper and to say there are so many unreached people group. So till this, yeah it's important everyone should hear the gospel but that is not the way of saying that the second coming of Jesus will not happen till all these unreached people group hear the gospel. It's not the way. If you read the gospel, if you read the scriptures carefully It is whenever God feels he's a sovereign God. You know, we cannot tell God when it has to be done and we cannot even predict this is the time God will come and when people start doing all the predictions, they will go wrong. And whenever God feels the gospel has sufficiently reached every nation, tribe, people, and language, Jesus will come. He will come again. Now, here we see that great multitude, no one could count. They're all standing before the throne and before the lamb and they were wearing white robes. White robes are always appropriate for worship. So here it's basically talking about a worship setup and it also it reflects the victor's dress. We have also seen when you know, the Roman uh, kings, when they have conquered a nation, they'll ride on a white horse. So white robes basically reflects a, a, an environment of worship and also uh, the victor. They've overcome, they've triumphed. And palm branches, uh, they're used in the, f- uh, in the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles basically to remember God's faithfulness uh, during their time of wandering as they wandered in the, f- in the desert. It was God who provided for them and it is the palm branches and that's how they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It is also a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that we see in Zechariah 14, 16. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. Palm branches, they, you know, they celebrated the victory of Israel's exodus from Egypt. And also, they always remembered God has been faithful. God has been faithful during their wandering in the wilderness. Today also, if you look back, God has always been faithful to each one of us. We can always celebrate his faithfulness by holding a palm branch in our hand. Uh, He has always been faithful. Today, if you're here for this Bible study, it is because God has been faithful. He has been faithful. He has never left us. So he will always remain faithful forever and ever. Even if we are not faithful, God will always be faithful to us. And that's what the palm branches, they denote that our God is a faithful God and we can always depend on him. That's what we see. So in Revelation 7, 10 to 13, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. After such a great praise, John is confronted with the question Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Why did one of the elders ask John, who are they and where did they come from? Is there any answer, Pastor? Why did one of the elders ask John, who are they and where did they come from? Anyone would like to make a guess? Okay. Jewish teachers sometimes asked questions they knew their disciples could not answer. So the disciples then responded by asking for the answer. And that's the very same technique that's employed here. You know, we find in the Gospels, Jesus asking questions and then answering. Uh, That's the technique that's here. That's the reason why one of the elders asked John, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? The elder knew that John will not be able to answer this question. He knew that. But he's asking, so John is saying, sir, you, you know the answer. Uh, that's why in Revelation 7:14 he says, I answered, sir, you know. Because the elder knew that John did not know. And, he, and now John says, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb <clears throat> now this is not the first time we come across this great tribulation because if you have read De- the book of daniel carefully in daniel 12:1 it's talking about a great time of distress in other words it's the great tribulation in daniel 12:1 it says at that time michael the great prince who protects your people will arise There will be a time of distress. This time of distress denotes great tribulation. Such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Now, that's why the elder is identifying this group as these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. And he adds to that, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now tell me, if we wash our robes in the blood, how will it become red? How will it become white? Because they were all in white dress. So if we wash our robes, in the blood, how will it become white? Washing a garment in blood does not make it white. So this is what we say that, this this is the symbolically he's telling, but when we read in the New Testament, it is in agreement with what we see in the New Testament, how our lives washed by the blood of Jesus Becomes holy, becomes white. Uh, that's what he's saying that. In other words, he says that our present blessedness. In other words, the very, you know, we we approach God, we say we pray, we go boldly before the throne of grace. But we should never forget that to go to that place boldly. To pray to God as God our Father, as Abba our Father, and to boldly place our petitions. You know, this was made possible because of the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But for his blood, but for his broken body, but for his death, but for his resurrection, none of us will be able to go before God and pray so boldly. So that's what he says, that he's reminding us of the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now this verse also tells us, yes, it is. we have been redeemed because of the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, but at the same time the redeemed also have a role to play He says, they washed their robes and made them white. It did not become white on its own. The people have washed their robes and made them white. This is, you know, this is in a poetic language. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, If you struggle to understand this, I said, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But the redeemed people also had a part. They have washed their robes and made them white. And and that's what John is explaining here. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Paul is telling the same truth. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Here it is more of a, a poetic language. And Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter two. Twelve, thirteen. continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In other words, he says your salvation comes from God. Uh, you have nothing to do in that. Again, he says, but at the same time, continue to work out your salvation. Continue to wash your robes with blood. Continue to wash, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, this is the same language that we find in Revelation. Now, after this, the, the vision is coming to an end. So, uh, you know, the, this particular vision has comforted people over a period of time. It has been a great comfort to say even to millions of people, they were comforted and they were consoled by this particular vision Um, because the vision ends with a promise, with an assurance, and that has comforted people. In Revelation 7, 15 to 16, we see that, therefore, they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes in fact this particular these verses have assured people as comforted people imagine you are you know you are in a land where you are taken into a prison and you do you just disappear no one knows how the family is comforted these are the verses, these are the promises that comforts them that consoles them you know because of the assurance where they are right now Though they are not here, we know they are in a better place, and how God shelters them. And if you see these uh, this two verses, 7, 15, and 16, uh, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamp at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That gives us the encouragement. That gives us the hope. That gives us the motivation to live for our Lord Jesus. We know where we will be. We know. We have that hope because he is our resurrected savior. And in this particular place, uh, John has borrowed heavily from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah four, five to six says, the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy it will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain." Not only from one particular passage, he is borrowed from several passages from the book of Isaiah. You see Isaiah 49:10. "'They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them besides springs of water. Um, not, Not only he will lead them besides springs of water, this passage also assures us that God will wipe away the tears of his people. That's there in Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth the Lord has spoken. Can you imagine the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator God? He will wipe away the tears from all faces. That's the confidence. That is the assurance we have. And Revelation 7.17 it says, For the lamp at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. It is a lamp who will be their shepherd. Imagine, it is the lamb who will be their shepherd. Even this verse, it's taken from Isaiah 4:11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that are young. You now God gently, compassionately leading his people to water You know, it presents him as a shepherd because we we know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. For he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, the lamb is the shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. It's interesting. Lambs were the weakest members of the flock, but Jesus is the shepherd because he was the slaughtered lamb he is a shepherd because he is a slaughtered lamb in the old testament you know the lamb was assigned or it 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 referred to yahweh in the book of isaiah or in the book of psalm when you read that you know the it it refers to Yahweh, and when John is using it in reference to Jesus, he's in other words, is again reaffirming the deity of Jesus. He is God. He is God. That's what he's repeatedly is reaffirming, that Jesus is God. Now, what are the lessons we can learn from this chapter? Because there were two visions. So what are the lessons that we can learn in this 21st century? Few lessons we can learn. The great end time army of God that we saw in Revelation chapter seven, one to eight, one 44,000, turns out not to be powerful warriors who slay the wicked for God but an army of martyrs who die for proclaiming God's message. They hail their ultimate hero, their leader, Jesus. This is the dynamics in the kingdom of God. Power, when we say power, it is not to kill others. It is not to slay the wicked. Rather, it is talking about an army of God's people who will die for proclaiming God's message. And that's what we see what's happening uh, all over the world. People are being killed just because of proclamation. But they hail their ultimate hero, their leader, Jesus. If Jesus is our savior, if Jesus is our king, if Jesus is our master, we are no bigger than our master. We are not greater than our master. So we have to follow our master. The second thing that we learn is in the kingdom of God, it was the death of the king that assured the victory. In the kingdom of God, it was the death of the king that assured the victory. Even the secular writers uh, or the secular historians, they've always testified. uh, They've said that the crucifixion of Jesus was a historical fact, irrespective of their faith, whether they believed in Judeo-Christian faith or whether they believed in the existence of God at all, they state clearly the crucifixion of death, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus was a historical, fate, a historical fact. Now, if it is a historical fact, it is, it is again, um, it is very difficult. You know, for any leader of a movement, if you are seeing in the world, there were many movements. Many leaders have come and they've gone. And no leader will try to portray himself as a weak person, more so towards his end. He will always pretend or he'll always portray himself as a strong person. It is only in, in the case of Christianity, our leader, our master, he died hanging on the cross as a helpless person. In the kingdom of God, it was the death of the king that assured the victory. And no one would like to follow a leader who died so helplessly or who was just, you know, that's why they made fun of Jesus. They insulted him. If you can, he wants to save the world. If you can save yourself, please come from the cross. They, they threw insults at him. But it is our, because it's the death of Jesus that has given us the victory. And we need to always keep this in mind. We have been saved. We have, our life is secure because of the blood of Jesus. Because he hung on the cross helplessly, today we have hope. Today we have that assurance that certainty that one day we will be with our God. Uh, this triumph, this chapter reminds us that our triumph rests on the finished work of Christ. Because in 7:14, you know, he will serve. He said, "These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb." The blood of the Lamb is the important thing. So a victory rests on the blood of Jesus. And our future hope is in fellowship with him. We need to have this hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's what we find in Matthew chapter five verse six. So we need to hunger for this fellowship. Oh Lord, I want to be in fellowship with you. And that is possible right here in this world. We don't have to die for that to have fellowship with our living Savior right here. In this world itself, we can have that fellowship with our Lord. Lastly, worship in the Spirit transcends cultural prejudices. God is too big to be limited to a single culture's worship style. I want all of us to understand this aspect very clearly because we saw that people from every nation, tribe, and people and language, that's what we saw before the throne of God, the great multitude comprising from every nation, tribe, people, and language. We want people from all language groups to come to, come and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. But what has happened in our churches, too often we are following a Western type. That's the way the gospel has come into this country or that's the way we have um, taken. Uh, Most of the time, we need to have a guitar. We need to have a musical system for us to worship. We need to have chairs. But when others want to sit on the floor and worship, let them have that liberty. God is not against it. We don't have to change them. That you have to sit on the worship, uh, you have to have a guitar. Let them worship in the way they understand because worship in the spirit transcends cultural prejudices. Uh, people have different ways of worshipping, so long they worship the Trinitarian God, so long as there is no error in their understanding of God, the, the way they worship, because Bible does not prescribe a you The know, Bible didn't say you need to have notes, you need to have guitar, you need to have a keyboard to worship. You know, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's all the Bible says. So we, when we read this chapter, we need to understand God is not unicultural. In in other words, God is not that, though Jesus came in in the Jewish cultural context, but his kingdom transcends, embraces people from every nation, tribe, language, and group. So we need to be very clear that God accepts different types of worship. God is too big to be limited to a single culture's worship style. We should keep this in mind. Uh, With this, I have finished uh, chapter seven. We will start chapter eight uh, next week. Uh, If you have any questions, you can ask. You can use your chat if you have questions or you have any feedback also you can share. If there are no questions, we can also end the session because I don't want to get into chapter 8. If there are no questions, we can, I think, we'll say this prayer as a closing prayer. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Glorious Father, we thank you because salvation belongs to you and you alone, O Lord. Lord Jesus, this time we remember your sacrifice, the blood that you shed for us on the cross, your broken body. We have been saved because of what you did for us, because what you did in our place. We worship you. We bow before you. Be with each one of us, O oh Lord. Continue to guide us. Continue to lead us. Continue to strengthen us. Help us to have Hope in you and you alone, not in the worldly things. Everything in this world will pass away. or everything in this world, O Lord, we will leave behind us. I pray our eyes will be fixed on you. We want to live for your glory, for your honor and your praise. Bless us, bless all of us with good health. Bless us with your peace. Bless us with your joy. Bless us with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.